This episode of Primitive Culture is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the non-profit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. This is Tim Russ, Lieutenant Commander Tuvok on Star Trek Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Open your mind to the past. Oh, this may mean something. It's a primitive culture. I'm just trying to blend in. Some people think the future means the end of history. We haven't run out of history quite yet. Welcome back, everyone, to Primitive Culture, a Trek FM podcast all about our history, our culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. I am your host, Tony Black, this week, and I'm joined uh, by my uh, co-host, Duncan Barrett. Hi, Tony. How are you? I'm I'm good, thanks, Duncan. I'm um, I'm really pleased we've got a, a third a third very special guest for this uh, for this episode. We have. Um, it's a uh, yeah, we have, and it's a real treat to uh, welcome on the show award winning uh, writer and a bit of a Star Trek books legend, Keith R. A. DeCandido. Welcome, Keith. <laughs> Thank you. I don't know if I'm a legend exactly, but I'll take it. Sure. Well, <laughs> I, I, I th- I'd say you are. <laughs> I'd say you are. And uh, you were very gracious a couple of years ago to uh, appear on uh, my X-Files podcast, The X-Cast. And of course, you've been on uh, other Trek FM shows, such as Literary Treks, because you're um, you're a man of fiction and you've written uh, a, a multitude of Star Trek books over the years, including uh, a book we're going to touch on today as part of a broader conversation, Articles of the Federation, which is a really big uh, favorite amongst fandom uh, uh, in terms of tie-in Star Trek books and things like that. And today's topic for primitive culture is going to be about politics and specifically Federation politics within Star Trek because it's a it's a fairly broad and fascinating topic, really. And uh, you know, Articles of the Federation is one of the key texts, really, that gets into um, what politics is in terms of this future twenty um, fourth century, in this case, world, in a way that hasn't really been been seen on screen. Uh, but which ties into all kinds of other kind of, you know, modern day fiction, things like the West Wing and all kinds of movies and things like that. So I suppose the best place to start off with, really, Keith, is um, originally what what was it that drew you to want to write about the politics of the Federation? Well, I like writing about politics generally. So that was something that uh, was of interest to me, at least in part. And and also just what, one of the things that that tie-in fiction is useful for is exploring things that are roads less well-traveled by the source material, shall we say, you know, uh, and, and uh, to deal with things that the, that the original either can't or won't, or just doesn't have time to deal with. And politics is one of those things. I mean, the, the Star Trek TV shows are all generally about Starfleet, even deep space nine, which had, you know, lots of other non-Starfleet characters as part of the, storyline was still basically about Starfleet's presence in Bajor in this particular case. Um, and, 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 and the others are all, you know, based on a particular starship, whether it's, it's enterprise or Voyager or discovery, what have you. So the, the politics of the Federation is something that was never really addressed much on screen. 
we 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 got we got to see we have gotten to see three different federation presidents and that's basically it and there's lots of references to the federation council and occasional appearances by various federation politicians from nils barris on the trouble with tribbles all the way up through to the 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 various presidents that we saw in the movies and and on deep space nine but we that that was it really most of the most of the representatives of the federation that we've seen have been starfleet not civilian um, which is the you know, the nature of the show. It's it's you know it's it's about Starfleet crews for the most part, so that that makes sense. But the so I was curious to explore that in a little more depth. On top of that, uh, I was specifically asked uh, by one of the editors at Simon and Schuster saying, "Hey, I want you to do a Star Trek version of the West Wing. I think you could do that really well." <laughs> so <laughs> there was that as well. Yeah, and 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 I think it's it, you know that that's one of the big things that comes across with in the book when you read it is that. There is that feeling of of Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing captured, you know, that level of that sense of, um, you know, fast paced, all kinds of things happening at once in trying to balance this interstellar, you know, federation of worlds and keep lots of plates spinning, which is what, you know, is always happening in The West Wing. You know, the fast paced walks down the corridor with lots of information flying around and all kinds of bills and, you know, <laughs> political, you know, shenanigans going on at the same time. And, and, I think one of the things we've talked about, Duncan, as well, in, in thinking about this episode is why it is that Star Trek hasn't really dealt with this much in comparison to other um, civilizations, you know, because we've seen loads of things going on with, you know, the Klingon Chancellor um, over the years, all kinds of diff- several different Klingon Chancellors over various shows, you know, we've seen things at the Romulan Senate, you know, the Romulan high powers, you know, that the, the there seems to have been a lot more interest in alien governments and, and things like that than than the human one, which is which is really strange in a way, even if it is, as you, as Keith said, you know, as you rightly said, it's all about crews exploring. It's like they haven't almost delved into that. And Articles is one of the first books that did and one of the first things that did well there's that wonderful line in the undiscovered country isn't there where spock says you know basically if we can't sort this out then it resides in the purview of the diplomats and the way he says it there's a sort of undercurrent of contempt you feel in that delivery almost i couldn't help thinking is that is that a kind of you know are we back to that kind of family squabbling again <laughs> by this point but um so you know it may be partly what what keith you were saying that you know this is about a show essentially about Starfleet. It's about a kind of military organization, however you want to define that. Uh, and obviously the kind of relationship between the military and the kind of political side of, of things is, is a complex one. I mean, I guess we see that most clearly really in the Deep Space Nine two-parter, Homefront and Paradise Lost, where you really get this sense of kind of, you know, the kind of diplomatic political process on the one hand with President uh, Inyo and then the, the kind of Starfleet representatives on the other hand kind of saying that we need to do this, we need to do that, we need to beef up security, you know, all this stuff, which, I mean, it's amazing watching that episode today and thinking that it, uh, you know, that it was actually made in the nineties and not in the, in the 2000s because all of those kind of issues came so much to the fore in the years after that episode was first broadcast. But I suppose it kind of, it gives a, an insight into that sort of tension almost between the kind of, uh, the sort of military approach of Starfleet, which is primarily what we see in Star Trek and this kind of, uh, civilian diplomatic, um, political sphere, which, uh, you know, obviously they're not always totally well aligned, even as they're meant to be working together. It, it was interesting actually, because I've been from 2011 to 
um, last year, basically, I was rewatching various Star Trek shows and writing about it for tour.com. And when I got to Homefront and Paradise Lost, it was kind of, I hadn't watched those two in a while. And it was, it was almost really spooky realizing how much more resonance that had, you know, now than it did at the time that it aired. You know, it was the whole idea of, of giving up, you know, when, when something horrible happens and having to give up uh liberty to for the illusion of security uh, was sort of theoretical when the episodes aired in the 90s mm. and then after after 2001 it became much more especially yeah certainly for me it became much more real just because i, I live in new york city uh and and over here in the states generally you know what what we went through in the early part of the millennium but it's it it was also frustrating you know back to, to what you were saying a minute ago about how we got to see so much klingon politics so much romulan politics and cardassian politics and and bajoran politics you know we we, we got such in-depth looks at those governments but never at the home one you know and part of that is we're you know there was conflict with those whereas you know the federation is is you know, kind of our side. So the only time it really did come up is when there was a conflict, which was in the case of, of what the founders were doing to disrupt the Federation government and home front and paradise lost. So, but what was interesting though, about articles was that was as much the run up to that as the actual book in, in, in that you would do, you would write in the, uh, a time two books for the next generation. And you have in that, this whole idea, spoilers and anyone who hasn't read them, just be wary of this. But you have this whole idea of the the Bolian president at that time, Min Min Zifa. I don't know his Zaif. name, Min Zifa. It was pronounced Zaif. Zaif. Um, okay, thank you. Um, you know, he essentially is uh, he, he's brought down. You know, because he has been lying to the people. He's been doing these, you know, backdoor kind of, you know, uh, f- you know, fueling uh, a, a, a terrorist state essentially. You know, and, and sending arms to this this. You know, and and it parallels a lot of what. You know, is going on has gone on in previous American you know, administrations. You know, there's hints of Nixon about about all of that, and and it's and it's one of those interesting things that you didn't get to see in the in the TV shows, but it's layered into the fabric of this, you know, this continuing universe outside, you know, beyond Nemesis and things like that. I mean, that must have been even before you wrote articles, Keith. That must have been really interesting to to layer in from a political perspective. Well, that was that was by design. We were we were part of what we were doing with the A Time 2 series, besides just generally telling the story of what the Enterprise was doing between uh, Insurrection and Nemesis, was also tr- basically showing the Federation moving past the ugliness of the Dominion War and getting back to being the Federation again. You know, the, there were on DS9, we got to see a lot of the compromises that had to be made on a, on a small scale, you know, in terms of things like how Cisco brought the Romulans into the war and in the pale moonlight and, 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 you know, the, the, the cost of what they had to do, you know, section 31, basically committing genocide, things like that. Now that they had fought and they had won getting themselves back onto, into being what the Federation is supposed to be was part of what we were, we were going towards in there. And, there was also, you know, the, the books, those books were written in 2003 and 2004. So there was a certain amount of commentary on what was going on in the country at the time with, with the, the wars in both Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, in particular with, with David Mack's two books, A Time to Kill and A Time to Heal, which was Dave created Min Zeif for those two books. We introduced him a little sooner in the series, but that was, that was, he was basically Dave's creation consulting with all of us. The, the A Time Two project was very collaborative among, among, uh, the group of us who wrote it in particular, 
uh, me, Dave, and Bob Greenberger did a lot to coordinate the final five books in the series with each other. So we we started that in Bob's two books, uh, just in little bits and pieces, and then it came to the four and Dave's books, and then I, my job was to clean up the mess afterward. But <laughs> but we wanted to delve into you know yes we saw the Dominion War as it was fought you know on the front lines with Cisco and with Admiral Ross, but there was also you know who was in charge of the Federation at the time, what type of president was he or she. And so that was, and so we developed the character of Zaif as well as his chief of staff, Carl Azernal, and, and their role, and how they were the right president for the country during, for the for the Federation rather, during war, because they were able to make the difficult decisions that a wartime president needs to make, but less well suited to it once it transitioned back, once the country, tra- once the Federation rather, I keep using country, I mean it is a country, but still, uh, once they transitioned back into peace, uh, getting back onto that proved a little more difficult because of the compromises that they made during war were catching up to them. Well, it's interesting. I think, you know, this whole idea of the kind of uh, legality or illegality of, of the president's role. And obviously, you know, Tony's mentioned Nixon. I mean, Nixon famously had that line, if the president does it, it's not illegal. And I guess, you know, again, going back to Star Trek VI, there's that line where the president basically, he, he says, this president is not above the law. That's kind of laying down quite a strict, you, you know, a, a clear line, basically saying, you know, I'm going to... Uh, go along with international law i'm going to do everything by the book i'm going to do everything properly and so on but you're right of course we see you know in deep space nine in something like in the pale moonlight we see cisco very much kind of going uh, outside of the law and, and trying to to bend the rules and so on and and i suppose there's this sense i mean i have to say i i haven't read the a time to books I, I read articles for this week and i really enjoyed it i thought it was a really fascinating look at all these kind of issues um and there, there's quite a lot of the kind of min zeif story is kind of uh is explained in there i think for you know for someone who's kind of missed those books uh coming into it but definitely it sort of raises these issues about you know do you do you want something different from a wartime president or a peacetime president and particularly maybe if the war is you know not the kind of wars that we fight in the real world these days uh but you know a war where you're potentially in danger of being completely annihilated i mean you know the the situation that they're in is is a difficult one and you know we see in our own history i suppose there are politicians who maybe come to the fore in certain circumstances I mean, i'm thinking someone like churchill for example was perhaps the right prime minister for wartime and not the right prime minister for peace you know and i suppose there is that sense that different kind of personalities different kind of approaches and so on might work better in different situations but that's not to say that you know that you can really have someone who gets away with just uh just saying well i can do whatever i like and you, you know and it doesn't matter if i'm breaking the law or not you know there do have to be certain kind of standards i suppose that we hold these people to account and obviously you know at the moment obviously in the united states uh, there's uh, a lot of uh, issues around this about well you know what are the kind of standards that you hold a president to account to and you know at what point does someone's behavior kind of um create a problem really you know a kind of political problem and a kind of democratic problem i suppose if the president's not behaving presidentially and just the difference in in how you know how a leader shapes how uh, a nation is responded to and how they deal with things that was uh, one of the way things i wanted to try to do that we tried to do with with articles and, and which you saw actually in, in particular which you you saw on on next gen and deep space nine with the uh, the change, the various changes in power in the Klingon Empire, and and on Deep Space Nine with the changes in power in the Cardassian Union, 
is is how their leadership allowed them to be perceived. You know, there was uh, Cardassian in particular was it was a really good example of that just because of all the different things they went, all the upheaval they went through, you know, in being uh, the Obsidian Order being wiped out, which was basically half the government, how that weakened them to the point where the Klingons are able to invade. And then and and the novels then continue that with uh, in the post finale novels uh, for Deep Space Nine and dealing with how Cardassia is rebuilding with several people, including Garrick, involved in, in the reconstruction of Cardassia. And that difference in, in how, and, and the difference between, you know, we, between how the Klingon Empire was under Kimpek and how it became under Gowron, and then later under Martok, as, as has been mostly, again, mostly dealt with in the fiction, because Martok was made Chancellor after, at the end of the show. Um, but even, even in those few episodes where Martok was Chancellor, there was a perceived difference with him in charge. There was a, a feeling of, of confidence and a better ally, basically, in the Klingons, in, in a more um, more honorable ally than, than Gowron, who was always, from the beginning, uh, an opportunist, from all the way back to when he was on Next Gen, and how that affected how the Klingon Empire was perceived, just because of that change in leadership on top. And for that matter, you know, and that goes back even to the movies with Gorkhan and, as it were, um, and, and the changes that they were trying to bring about. But if if you've noticed that when you when you list all those examples, you know you're absolutely right. But they're often driven by personalities, aren't they? You know they're often driven by these you know memorable characters. People like Gowron, you know, who for all his faults was 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 a really memorable character. You know, even when you had the massive power, you know, coup and the shift in Romulus with shins on. You know, however contentious you know a film nemesis can be, and however you know it, it divides people, Shinzon was a was a, a character. You know, he was a very interesting character. You know, even though he didn't last very long. If you think about the Federation presidents we've seen, you know, I mean, that's one of the things about articles. You know, Nani Tobacco is one of the most interesting sort of characters. You know, you, you, you would really like to see her characterized, you know, on TV because she would actually have been a really interesting rounded president figure who you could have popped up in these TV shows at various points and functioned in, in a specific way. Whereas when you look at, you know, the, the presidents we've seen, you know, Jarish Inyo was, was quite, you know, he was quite weak in Deep Space Nine. You had the, um, I think it was Ra, Ra Gotra, probably hashing these names up, but Ra Gotra in, um, the, in the Undiscovered Country was, was an interesting, you know, it quite like, like Duncan said, you know, quite firm, you know, I'm not above the law kind of character, but he was, he wasn't massively well characterized. He was more in the background. And then the, the guy, uh, in the voyage home was like a cuddly old grandfather you know? <laughs> when, when it's like when they've got the you know the whale probe so you know you've never really had one of these really sort of interesting and dare i say terran human characters driving that you know that 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 political story on the federation side naturally appearing regularly to sort of make a mark in that way and it's, it's really interesting why none of the shows seem to feel that that was necessary to have a kind of strong federation leader i suppose yeah i mean that's that's one of the things that struck me about articles is that you know you you have created this great character in president bacco who i mean it does feel very west wing she feels very much like a kind of president bartlett type character you know sort of a real kind of character real kind of personality coming across whereas i think you're right tony with the ones that we've seen on screen i mean granted they're, they're only on screen briefly and so on and in in some ways it's a kind of functional role more than anything but at the same time 
It is strange in a way, really, that we haven't seen anyone to, you know, to match the Gaurons or the Guldercuts or the, you, you know, the kind of, or the female changeling, you know, any of these kind of great, these characters who love them or hate them, there's a sense of a kind of a great leader or, or a kind of a charismatic leader. There's a, you know, like we have with, I don't know, someone like Putin, we, you know, we might not like him, but we kind of can't deny that he's got a kind of, um, there's a lot of personality there. There's there's a lot there somehow. Whereas these Federation presidents that we've seen on script on screen, you know, they often feel a bit more like sort of functionaries. I mean, Jarrett Inyo, I think, even says in those episodes, you know, oh, I never sought this office. I never really wanted to be in charge. Uh, you know, I just sort of ended up with this job somehow. And that's that's kind of the feeling you get off him, you know. Where are these kind of great inspiring leaders? I mean, I guess maybe the closest we get is that kind of hint. I think there's on that that sort of um, on-screen text in In a Mirror Darkly, which is sort of whether it's considered canon or not is is kind of up for grabs. But this idea that uh, Jonathan Archer becomes a Federation president, well, you can kind of imagine with him there'd be a bit more charisma there, there'd be a bit more a bit more there there somehow. Do you know? I don't know. I watched Enterprise for four years. I didn't see that much charisma. Um, (laughs) Oh, well, he was he was building up to it towards the end in that in that um, penultimate episode. He gave a pretty good speech for once. Yeah, no, I know. I'm 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 just I'm just you know, give him a few more years. The That's Keith's invite on Warp Five, John. <laughs> there, I think. But no, it, you, you are right, though. It is. It is. It would have been great if you know if Enterprise had lasted, you know. And and it's one of those. It, it, the, it's one of those shows that more than likely would have depicted the Earth Romulan War and then led into the Federation's, you know, beginning. It would have been great if you've had, which, if which you've had actually a season almost been done by the tie-in fiction. But first, yeah. uh, Michael A. Martin and that now Christopher L. Bennett have been uh, have been continuing Enterprise's story. They first did the Romulan War and then and then Christopher's been doing the the rise of the federation novels that have been you know picking up on all the themes from enterprise and building you know building the federation up and showing its its earliest days exactly and it would have been great if on screen almost it would have been quite radical but if you'd actually taken archer off the bridge and had him in some sort of leadership role you know as an incumbent president or something like that and actually had a season of him doing that kind of job that would have been really interesting you know to take that kind of story and but it always seems like the characters who function in that same role that you would have a martok or you would have a shinzon or whatever they always seem to be admirals they always seem to be high-ranking admirals like admiral ross or admiral forest or you know in in admiral cornwall in um discovery you know they always seem to be these admiral figures and i suppose does that make sense because it's a it's starfleet is is a military organization or ultimately it does make sense in the sense that the the main characters that we have are ship commanders their orders would come from the admiralty the admiralty's orders are going to come from the president but that that's a chain of command thing you know the 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 president isn't going to be dealing directly with starship captains any more than yeah i mean like to, to, to look at the, the current United States, the, the president is going to give orders to the Joint Chiefs of Staff who are then going to pass down the orders to their subordinates. That's, you know, that, that's so the, in that sense, the fact that there hasn't been much interaction makes sense. Having said that, there's a lot of circumstances, particularly when when major political things have been involved uh, both on Next Gen and Deep Space Nine, and and on Discovery also, where you'd think there'd be something from the civilian government, you know, I- interacting with somebody, just because there's important stuff going on, whether it's a war with the Klingons in Discovery, whether it's the Dominion War on Deep Space Nine, whether it's a change in power in the Klingon Empire on Next Gen. These are all things where, you know, somebody, at least somebody from the Federation Council or a Federation ambassador should be involved. We've only, well, and, and having said that, of course, a Federation ambassador was involved in, in the change of power 
from Kimpek to Gowron because we had Kalar, even though she got killed. And and that that was a rare case, and and it was only because they wanted to bring Kalar back. But that was the sort of thing we should have been seeing more of. Uh, you know, even if it wasn't necessarily a Federation politician, we should have at least been seeing, you know. Uh, uh, diplomatic representation, not just military. It struck me as quite strange that in that um, final episode of Discovery, you you know, we go to Paris, uh, which we've kind of established is the kind of diplomatic political heart of the Federation, I suppose. We're not in San Francisco, we're actually specifically in Paris. And yet what we see in that final scene is, you know, Admiral Cornwall in charge. We hear that Burnham has had this presidential pardon, but we don't see the president. We don't see any of this kind of, you know, this kind of political administration. Again, we only see Starfleet. Do, do they maybe think that it's just not very interesting? And I, I suppose this is this is where it would have been, this is where to bring, you know, to talk about the West Wing and something like that. I, I think, you know, as articles showed, you can do some really good drama around that kind of setting, you know, and it would, wouldn't it be interesting to see a Star Trek show actually have the brevity to to sort of include that aspect as as part of its you know as part of its story you know and have you know some element of it set on Earth or or even it wouldn't even have to be on Earth it could be a diplomatic core you know including the president or whoever on on a ship you know in part of a mission or something like that and actually have that back and forth have that you know that interaction that you. You saw in articles, you see in the West Wing with all these various characters, chiefs of staff and, you know, advisors and all these people, you know, giving the president information and getting involved. I mean, I, I think that could be really good in terms of drama and it could add a really new dimension. But they seem to, they, whenever, whenever you see politicians, they're, they're, they're like, <laughs> I always think of that, um, well, that Deep Space Nine episode. It might be the Forsaken in season one where Luaxana Troy comes on board and the ambassadors are just, awful <laughs> they're just awful people they're just sarcastic and rude and you just think just how on earth have you got to the position you have you know you seem inept <laughs> you know and they, they never seem to give them any skills that's been a consistent trope in star trek and it's one that i in particular after after re-watching next gen deep space nine in the original series for, for five years it's 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 a it's an annoying trend in that they have a tendency to just have politicians all of all sorts just be ignoramuses and annoying and and just there to get in the way of our heroes, which which is a lazy way of writing it, but it's you know it's an easy way to make your own characters look better, I guess. Yeah, but I mean even on the original series where you had you know like Ambassador Fox in in the Taste of Armageddon, uh, Nils Barris in the Trouble with Tribbles, who is a, a cabinet member. Uh, Ferris in 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 the Galileo Seven is supposed to be an antagonistic character, but he's actually the one whose side I'm on. But because uh, in 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 that particular episode, he's trying to get medicine to people who need it, and Kirk decided to take a break to look at a stare at a quasar for a few minutes. It's like really guys, <laughs> priorities maybe. And and I will I do want to rise to the defense a little bit of. Uh, the president in Star Trek VI, who actually was, you know, doing a good job of trying to balance all the different diplomatic needs of what was going on. Um, you know, listening to he 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 listened to all the different options that were presented to him. You know, not just from his own people, but also from you know the the Romulan ambassador, from the Klingon ambassador, from Sarek, from you know uh, Colonel West, and, and a lot of this is in the the extended scenes that we didn't that weren't in the theatrical release, but were in home video. Kurtwood Smith played him in, and he, you could see that he was trying very hard to balance and and do the right thing. He he wasn't as ineffectual as Jarishinya was, and he wasn't as irrelevant as as the president in Star Trek Four was, who was really you know didn't really he was just sort of there to be there. 
you know, all he, but all he really got to do was warn people not to come to Earth and then, you know, pass sentence on the crew at the end. And that was pretty much it. It wasn't it wasn't much of a he didn't really have much of a presence. I actually I gave I gave him a name of uh, Hiram Roth in in uh-huh. articles and, and tried to give him a little more interesting history. And he he's another one. He's another character who showed up uh, a lot in the tie-in fiction, particularly in the comic book. The uh, the comic books that took place after uh, Star Trek Four and Star Trek Five that were being done by DC, uh, the president showed up a few times as a, as a regular character. But I I think the the guy in um, the undiscovered country, I suppose the the reason he's he's he is a bit more interesting is that he gets to he's the virtuous one ultimately, isn't he? You know, he's the he, he there's these conspirators in his own government. You know, um, in his own ambassador, ambassador corps, and Admiral Cartwright, and all these guys. So he's he's not the kind of president we late, you know, we we later see in some of this time fiction with you know, um, Minzeif and uh, weak weak presidents, even not not necessarily corrupt like Jared Gerasenio, but weak. He's he gets he gives the impression he's fairly strong, but unfortunately, this conspiracy has you know been created around him. And it, it's, it, you know, it was interesting how you get that, you get to see a president like that in 1991, you know, as the, you know, the, the, cold, the cold war is coming to an end and the next, and discover the undiscovered country is a very interesting film because of that. Cause Nicholas Meyer does actually get into the political side of it, you know, and he does. And I suppose the other character who is consistently sort of characterized in that sense is Sarek, isn't he? Because all the way through, he is an ambassador. You know, and he, he, but, but then uh, it, it, they, they don't really use him in that sense as much as Spock's dad and having that emotional connection to Spock and all this kind of thing, you know, emotional in Vulcan sense, you know, but, um, but you, do you know what I mean? It, it's, he's, it's interesting that he, he fills that role as, as quite a virtuous, you know, strong president, but unfortunately surrounded by people who are trying to, you know, corrupt the system. Well, they want to, they're, they're soldiers who want to keep the war going, which, which is, you know, another, Interesting, you know, it's, it's something you saw a lot of. It was a theme you saw a lot of in the in the early in the well throughout the 1990s, pretty much as you know, when after after the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, a very common thread in a lot of political fiction was you know people who used to be you know cold warriors, as it were, who were involved in the in the fight between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, who suddenly had nothing to do, uh, or had to change the way they did things, and and were struggling with that transition. And, 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 yeah, and that was, that was, this, you know, the undiscovered country was going for the same theme of that. And, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you readjust when, when the political landscape changes, how do you adjust? Which is, you know, we start, that's not something Star Trek has dealt with much uh, on screen. Although it did, you did see it with Cardassia really, you know, cause they, they had the major fallout from, from the Obsidian order being wiped out. Cause that was, you know, literally half their government. <laughs> so, mm. I think it's kind of significant that in the undiscovered country, you see the president kind of doing presidential stuff in a way, whereas the the president in Star Trek Four is really he's I, I suppose he's he's he is uh, you know kind of chairing the council at the beginning and at the end to some extent, but but that feels like a it does I don't know it, that feels like a fairly sort of functional role somehow he's he's not really making big decisions even the pardon I mean we have this idea of the presidential pardon I mean that's one of the kind of um in the American system anyway that's one of the kind of great uh powers that the president has isn't it in a way I mean I was just um rewatching a bit of the West Wing and the very last episode of the West Wing hinges on this question of whether the president as his kind of final act in the last few minutes of his presidency is going to uh pardon 
this is a spoiler, by the way, for anyone who hasn't seen The West Wing, is going to pardon Toby Ziegler for what he's done. And and that kind of idea that the president has this kind of power. I mean, it's interesting, you know, talking about legality and the president not being above the law and so on. In a sense, by having the power of pardon, the president can kind of circumvent the law. But in, in Star Trek Four. It's interesting, the presidential pardon at the end of that film is described as a council pardon, that they they have decided on it together. You know, this idea of they, they've thrown out most of the charges, they decided to, to demote Captain Kirk, which again, actually, you would think is would be, a, you know, demoting uh, an admiral, you'd think would be a Starfleet matter, not a kind of civilian matter. So it's all a bit murky somehow, that whole thing. But I don't know, I just thought that that's interesting. So again, he feels very much like he's just sort of the spokesperson for this council almost. Whereas in Star Trek VI, you know, we see him in his office, he's taking meetings with the ambassadors, he's kind of making decisions. He's, he's you know, this quite inspirational character making this speech at the end, you know, he survives an assassination attempt. So I suppose, although we don't get to know all that much about him as a person, we sort of see him being quite presidential, doing quite kind of, you know, uh, recognisably presidential things, uh, you know, even if that's being shot at and, and nearly dying in a dramatic fashion. You know, it kind of, it, it makes him feel more presidential somehow that he goes through all of that. And, and Jarish, you know, you know, at least we see him in office and trying and making, you know, making decisions. He winds up being, you know, he's been manipulated by, by, by the, the corrupt elements of Starfleet, by, by. I'm blanking. Admiral Layton. Admiral Layton, wasn't it? I was thinking Admiral Foxworth. No, that's the actor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's close. But at the very least, you know, we see him in office making decisions and and trying to, you know, do his job. Uh, But as as with Gregor Trey in in Star Trek VI, he's he's unfortunately being done in by corrupt elements. And it, it feels like it's a lost opportunity particularly on Deep Space Nine, to have not seen a president beyond that, beyond that that two-parter. At the very least, in what you leave behind, the Federation president should be there during the signing of the armistice, you know, and all we saw were Starfleet personnel, which didn't make any sense. It's, I mean, it, like I said, it's part it's part and parcel of being, you know, dealing of a show that deals with the people in the field in the military. They, you know, I mean, how often does, you know, the commander of a army platoon deal with the president of the United States? It doesn't happen that often. But every once in a while, you know, uh, like you said, a recurring character, I'm thinking, you know, or even just, you know, more mention of the influence. I'm thinking of um, uh, Babylon 5, where President Clark, we only saw President Clark once, maybe, um, but the, the, that character had a, a, pres- a presence and an influence that, that affected what was going on. That was, that was actually a particularly good use of that type of character and how the people on the ground would, would interact in, in the, you know, the influence of it, if, if not necessarily the phys- direct physical presence. Cause he was essentially like a Hitler, wasn't he? As, basically he was a fascist, you know, leader who a lot of people wouldn't, you know, wouldn't have, have seen, or, you know, close. He, the fact, the fact that we didn't see Clark very much made him scarier in a way, made him more of a, more of a threat because he was just this monolithic sort of idea, this person who had these, you know, this immense amount of force behind him, but you didn't see him, but he was, yeah, like you said, he was pervasive in Babylon 5. He was always there. He was always being, he was mentioned all the time, you know, he was. Well, until he was killed anyway. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) But but, and I don't even, did we even see that? I don't even know if you even saw him die. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was all off camera. 
But yeah, yeah, which is which is it's fascinating been a while because yeah, it's been twenty years. But, uh, but well, yeah. yeah, same. But it was fascinating because they didn't even need to show that. You know, it was it wasn't because it wasn't directly about him, but he was important to the story, and and that's that's well, like you say, you know, the the president should have been there at the end in what you you know what you leave behind because it was the whole idea of the you know the the allies in berlin wasn't it basically and you know and and it would have been really interesting to see the three you know a a bunch of world leaders you know (laughs) actually actually there it would have been interesting to see that and uh, because because ultimately you know you mentioned it earlier duncan when you were talking about the council and some of the decisions in you know it's important to remember the federation was really in many ways born out of crisis you know it came off the back of this massive interstellar war which earth nearly lost you know, and then they, you know, they brought they brought together a union to think for, you know, to think in the, you know, in a very forward thinking way and try and create something, you know, better. But you know, the federation came off the back of of something a bit like the United Nations. It came off the back of something that was meant as a healer, you know, to to past wars and past, you know, you know, destruction, this kind of thing, to sort of give them a new mission statement. So it, it, there's there's a very clear parallel between. You know them coming. This group of people coming together the, in in the UN. It was nations. In this case, it's alien. It's worlds. So the president almost doesn't have the same, you know, sense of of persona and and power that that a chancellor of the Klingon Empire would, I suppose, or a praetor of the Romulan Senate. You know that kind of thing. It's the, maybe that's one of the differences. Well, they make that remark in. Um I think it's in Homefront, don't they, where they say basically that, you know, the president of the Federation is not human and therefore is not going to care as much about Earth as as humans do. So I suppose there is that sense, you, you know, and I, I suppose I think it's an interesting question. I mean, obviously, Keith, with your book articles, you, you know, the, the kind of West Wing parallels are impossible to miss. But I suppose also there's this sort of question with the Federation. Is it run like a kind of American political system? Is it run like the UN? I mean, you talk about there being a security council, which obviously is something, you know, we know we have it with the UN. Um, what, what's the kind of model? Cause also I was, I was going for something that was kind of a, a combination of some of the better elements of the US, the UK and the UN. Mm. Um, That's interesting. You know, it was, it was, there were, there, there are some very, you know, parliamentary aspects of it and there were very republic aspects of it similar to the, to the u.s model um which was partly based on what we'd already seen you know there was a, a president and a council and the council obviously at least based on what the mentions of it has a certain amount of power and and different you know committees and and councils and such uh i you know, i didn't i didn't want to just go for a, a one-to-one analog of the u.s model because that would be mm. lazy uh and not really in keeping with the uh the whole idea of a united earth rather than the united states taking over the earth which was you know, the whole idea. The whole idea originally of Star Trek was that it was a united earth. That was, that was what was so radical about it mm. in 1966 was that you had, you had not only the, the good old fashioned white Americans, but you also had the Asian and the Asians and Russians and, and people of different skin colors all serving together. And nobody commented on it that, you know, people, people who were seeing, us fight. Uh, they would turn on the news and see the U.S. fighting a war against people who look like Mr. Sulu and civil rights unrest from people who look like Lieutenant Uhura, and you know, fighting a cold war against people who sounded like Ensign Chekhov. And yet here they were all working together, all good friends, being happy, and and nobody comments on that or the fact that the science officer has pointed ears. That was and and the idea that it was you know the entire Earth coming together. Um, so I wanted the government to be representative of more than one different style of government sort of combined, which is in keeping with, with the Federation. 
Um, and you, yeah, but the hell, you I, there were even some elements of the Roman Senate in there, you know, mm-hmm. um, in how I was putting it together and, and hopefully succeeded. But um, it's the sort of thing that would be that was fascinating to me to look at, you know, because it's not something that the shows really even needed to deal with. But I wanted to, you know, again, one of the advantages of tie-in fiction is that we can show things that you don't necessarily get from the source material, um, particularly a tie-in line as robust and as lengthy as Star Trek's. There's a lot of room to do different things, whether it's, you know, Garak's autobiography or, you know, books based on on other ships, you know, whether it's a Klingon ship or Picard Simon the Stargazer or Vanguard or, or Titan or whatever that it, or New Frontier that doesn't tie directly into a, an existing show or to do, you know, something like articles like the Section 31 books that Dave Mack did, like, you know, for that matter a, another, it, is, it wasn't really a sequel to Articles of the Federation, but it was sort of a spiritual successor, was a book called A Singular Destiny, which picked up on, on Dave Mack's uh, Destiny trilogy uh, and showing just how what the greater impact of what happened in that trilogy was on the Federation and the galaxy as a whole, you know, whereas other, other novels dealt with the specifics of how the crews were familiar with, uh, dealt with it. You know, um, the, the object with the singular destiny was to show the, the broader implications and also set up future stories with the Typhon pact and whatnot. Articles of the Federation, while it, ha- it is probably one of my best reviewed novels and one that is, is generally liked by people who read it, uh, wasn't a particularly big seller. It it was you know because it was it was sort of an odd duck in in Treklet even by our weird standards. You know while it was well received by people who bought it, a lot of people didn't buy it in the first place. But what what has been heartening to me is how influential it's become because in in the 24th century that's been written since then, which has all been you know basically linked, articles has continued to be the template for how to write the Federation government. The Federation government has been involved in a lot of the things, whether it's, you know, the Borg invasion in the Destiny trilogy, dealing with the Typhon Pact in those books, and so on. So it, it's really gratifying to me how much there's there's a there was an album that was released in 1968 called Music from Big Pink. It was by a group called The Band. And the average rock and roll fan may not know that album. But you ask almost any rock and roll musician who was working in the late 60s and early 70s and all the way up into the 80s, they will likely list music from Big Pink as a major influence on them as musicians. And articles have sort of become the music from Big Pink of the Star Trek uh, novel field. It's like not 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 everybody's read it necessarily, but it's it's had this major impact on on how the fiction has been written. And, and it's very gratifying to me. Uh, not least of which is because uh, President Baco is at least partly based on my late great grandmother, who uh, who died the year before I wrote. I introduced the character in a time for a time for peace, and was meant as a tribute to her. So the fact that she became such a major character, she appeared in something like a dozen novels after after articles. You know, I I would have been happy if she just got mentioned once or twice, and she turned into this major supporting character. So that was that was really gratifying, um, and 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 I hope. It's my hope that, you know, going forward, it, it, it's the sort of thing that people might, you know, take into account. You know, I was I, like, I forget which one of you said it, but one of you mentioned that, that it was disappointing that we met, they mentioned a presidential pardon and discovery and they were in Paris, but we didn't actually see any of that. Mm. Um, and that would have been, that would have been a nice thing to see. And, and I'm hoping that moving forward, discovery might give us the opportunity to, to show, show that in action, especially since one of the staff writers on discovery is Kirsten Beyer, who, is familiar with the novel 
<laughs> line, having been written in it for a while and having written President Baco herself uh, in one of her Voyager novels. So we'll see. It's interesting, though. We've talked a little bit about the limited number of Federation presidents that we have seen on screen um, and how maybe, you know, maybe in some cases they didn't quite live up to expectations. I mean, Tony, you and I were talking a little while ago about Michael Piller's book, Fade In, uh, which details the kind of creative process behind Star Trek Insurrection. And in one of his earliest drafts or one of his earliest treatments for that film, he had this character of the Federation president who was a Vulcan, who uh, he wanted to be played by Ian McKellen. And he wanted Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen to be squaring off in the Federation, uh, in the council or the Senate or whatever, and to have these kind of big political debates. And this was the, the thing that got nixed by, uh, Rick Berman, because he basically said, Oh, this is all just boring. I'm not interested. Um, so, so, you know, it kind of made me think if we, if we had seen that version of insurrection put up on the screen, you know, would that have been our kind of defining image of, I mean, as it turned out, a kind of morally, uh, dubious president, but certainly if you had Ian McKellen playing this Federation president, you'd get, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd get a big performance there. You'd get someone quite interesting, um, that would have kind of added to that. And, you know, it's a shame really that we didn't ever get to see that version of that story. Yeah. No, it is really. And I, th- I think it, it, it's possibly indicative of the time, you know, I mean, the question is whether or not you would, f- in this day and age, you would find, you know, the writers interested enough to, you know, to write these kind of characters and to include this aspect into, you know, into the, I mean, because obviously, you know, some of the articles came off the back of, you know, the West Wing and its success during those years, you know, so, you know, that, that kind of political show is really popular. And it's continued to be, you've got, you've got, Madam Secretary, you've got um, uh, House of Cards, what's it, designated survivors. You've got House of Cards. You've got, you know, for that matter, even you know, twenty four. Always, you know, presidential politics were a big part of twenty four mm. as well. Um, you know, all in the in the in the twenty years since since the West Wing debuted. I don't think we've had it. We've ever had a period where there wasn't a show on the air where the president of the United States wasn't a at least a supporting character. And and especially now, I mean, especially now, given how you know, it, even more than Obama. You know, the current president is in the news every single day, you know, across the world. Not, you know, not always for the, for the best. <laughs> in fact, not often for the best, but you know, he, he's, he's unavoidable. And, and I think it would be fascinating to see Star Trek. You know, I mean, it's, it's worked hard with Discovery to try and reflect, you know, this, this growing sense of unease about where we're heading as a society, you know, with the rise of the far right and things like that with the mirror universe, you know, doing so much with that, you know, it's, it's, it's managed to comment on, on the current day, you know, and, you know, you could, you could say that, you know, Emperor Giorgio being this, you know, hardline sort of far right sort of leader, I suppose, in some respects is, is a commentary, but there's, there's more of an interesting sort of idea I think they could bring into something like Discovery. So you kind of hope that they would have the, you know, the um, the guts to do that, I think, in this day and age. I was just thinking, it's interesting. I mean, talking about the West Wing, I mean, I'm not sure really what, you know, whether that was a bit of a sea change in itself, because I suppose what's significant about the West Wing, and I think this comes across in, uh, in Keith's book articles as well, is this sense that, um, you know, these are good people, they're kind of idealistic people, they're doing their best, they're compromising a bit here and there, they're, there are a few rough edges in terms of personalities and so on, but it's quite a kind of inspiring thing. And I was thinking in terms of, say, earlier kind of political series that that come to mind for me, certainly in Britain, things like Yes Minister, House of Cards, you know, House of Cards, as in the, the 
you know, current American remake is a very cynical attitude to politics. You know, everyone is self-serving and if not murderous and evil, uh, you know, yes, minister, the political setup is the politicians are basically buffoons and idiots and don't know what they're doing and they need someone else to kind of do everything for them. I suppose what was interesting about the West Wing was that everyone, everyone was at the top of their game. Everyone was, you know, absolutely, uh, they were doing things for the right reasons, you know, even if they might disagree about what, what exactly was the right thing to do. It was quite Star Trek in that sense. It was quite idealistic. And it also had this interesting thing. I mean, I was thinking when we were talking about, you know, the president doesn't necessarily need to be in every episode or the president doesn't need to be a, a main character or whatever. You know, the original idea for the West Wing, um, was that the president would barely be in it. You know, he would be a kind of a cameo. And and watching, I, I went back, my, my kind of research for, for this episode of Primitive Culture was, uh, I didn't have time to go and rewatch the whole West Wing, but I watched the first episode and I watched the last episode. Uh, and watching that first episode, it's kind of amazing because what you have is, you know, the president literally appears halfway through the final scene of that episode. The whole of the rest of the setup is all about the staff. It's the kind of, it's almost the lower decks in a kind of, Star Trek concept, you know, uh, or, or, or not quite the lower decks, but you, you know, not, not seeing the actual absolute top. And then he just comes in for like five minutes at the end and kind of gives this, uh, you know, remarkable performance and kind of, uh, wipes the floor with everyone and, and kind of swans out. And you, and you can kind of see why from then on they basically bumped his character up a bit and decided to do more with him. But, but, but it's kind of interesting that idea that you, you know, you can tell that story and that pilot in itself tells a very effective story with the president kind of being the person that everyone is talking about, but you, you're almost never seeing. Do you know what I mean? Cause he's always off in another room doing something on the phone to some world leader or, you know, or whatever it is. You know, you don't necessarily have to see it all. Change just from the sheer power of Martin Sheen's awesomeness. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. Yeah. This is it. We just need, uh, you know, Nanny and Tobacco to appear now and get an amazing actress <laughs> to come in and uh, and make it happen. But um, one, one of the running gags on the Trek BBS uh, has always been, especially uh, it was at its height, obviously, in the mid 2000s when when A Time for a Time for Peace and and Articles of the Federation came out. But it's continued on and off since then is is trying to cast uh, President Paco. And, uh, I, I have a very clear image in my head of what she's supposed to look like, which doesn't actually match any existing actor. <laughs> um, but, but some have come close. Um, and, and there've been some good suggestions. Uh, who knows? Maybe, maybe we'll get it one day. I'm not holding my breath, but I, <laughs> <laughs> you never know. Yeah. Strange things have happened. But, yeah. Uh, but no, it's, it's been an interesting uh, discussion, uh, hacking through the politics and the, uh, the presidents and, um, Keith, we don't normally do a sign-off um, as such, but given you're a special guest, um, do you want to point people to where they can find out about what you're working on right now and, and where's best to find you on the social media? Uh, best bet is to go to my website, which is at decandido.net. Right now, it's just uh, kind of a link dump, but uh, that's uh, eventually I'm going to spruce it up a little bit more. But right now, uh, if you go to decandido.net, it'll point you at my blog, which I update fairly regularly, uh, my, my presence on both Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, uh, it links you to my articles on tour.com, including the various Star Trek rewatches. Uh, I also reviewed every episode of Discovery as they came out, so that's up there as well. And uh, there's also an email link there and links to my most recent uh, works of fiction. So that that's your best bet. Just uh, go there and that'll that'll sh- give you all your, your complete guide to cyber stalking me can be found at, <laughs> at, at the end of that. That's perfect. That's great. And uh, obviously talking about uh, Federation presidents and uh, the political spectrum um, and who might play Nania Tobacco one day isn't the only thing that's uh, happening on Trek FM right now. So here's a little look at what else is happening right now on the network. Previously on Trek.fm. 
The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. Also, and this might be me reading way too much into this, but I feel like because Tilly ends up being so instrumental in what happens later in the Mirror Universe, part of me when I was reading this wondered if in the back of my mind, Stamets is like, I need to have one person, and Lark is like, oh, I want to make my own... Oh, Tilly, that's who you want. Yeah, okay, (laughs) sure. (laughs) To the journey! This is Jeff Foxworthy, You Might Be a Redneck If. Oh, Lord. (laughs) If you fall in love with a hologram... (laughs) You might be in a doomed relationship. If you fall in love and it never really happened... You might be in a doomed relationship. If you fall in love with someone manipulative... You might be in a doomed relationship. If you can't even remember your own name... You're definitely in a doomed relationship. (laughs) (laughs) The Orb. So I'm going to destroy your computers. So if you want to fight, you're going to have to use real bombs. I hope you're ready because I'm leaving. You figure it out. But of course, trailing the Enterprise is always the Starfleet cleanup ship that comes in and yeah, cleans the up the mess. Yeah, the USS Broom Sweep. Right, yeah. the USS Broom Sweep. Standard orbit. Can we not just go to just a planet and everybody has dark complexion and it's just, it's not a thing? You know, it's not like a crux of the story, right? That would have been, I think that would have been true progress. And it's not even like, oh, well, since we're going to this planet, we have to talk about race. That's the whole point of the whole story. Uh, it serves the story well, but I don't think that's a prerequisite to have a story like this. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they are published. And please do leave us a star rating and a written review at the same time. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd also like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, The Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, so we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Duncan and I would love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to get involved and do just that. The best place to join in the large conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. You can also find the network on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. You can find Duncan and I on the Babel Conference as well, and you can find us both on Twitter Duncan at Barrett's Books and myself, Tony, at Black Hole Media. And you can also find me hosting my own podcast, the Xcast and X-Files podcast, if you type that into Twitter and 
Facebook. So thanks everyone for listening to this episode of Primitive Culture. We'll be back soon to discuss more history, culture, and how Star Trek relates to it. You're blended already.